Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Hair of the Werewolf. I'm Lily, and I have with me Chase. Hey! And uh, we are a true paranormal horror podcast that likes to tell stories from all over the world. We like to scare each other and, of course, have some drinks in between. (laughs) So today it's not going to be me yapping all day. It's actually going to be a big, big story that Chase will be covering, so I'm pretty excited about that. And this is one of the few times where Lily actually knows the story. We even fought over who was going to do it. Um, But we also knew we each didn't have all the facts and figures and all the deep research. So she's still going to be learning some new stuff today. And I hope you guys are as well. Because it's a well-known story, but it's also probably one of the greatest unsolved mysteries I know of at the moment. Yeah, so I know the story fairly well in the sense that, like, I've heard it a few times, um, bits and pieces over and over again from different, you know, like, shows or whatever, people talking about it. But, yeah, going in depth and doing the research yourself and also maybe getting more information that you might not have gotten in other sources is interesting. So I'm very, very curious what you might have that I don't know. Yeah, I went to more sources than I have for a story before, and this is definitely (laughs) the longest story I've written before by like 200 percent okay so this is big i'm pretty excited so how about we stop teasing everyone and we (laughs) actually get into it because i i can't wait like i honestly can't wait and that's smart because today's story is a doozy for those of you that are big into this sort of thing because this jumps the line of true crime and and mystery and supernatural bear with me you might already be familiar with it but there is new stuff including new evidence uh and new research that occurred within the last year okay so today i'm gonna talk about the dietlov pass incident yay so for those of you who haven't heard of it Be prepared, because this one is super exciting. (laughs) The Dyatlov Pass incident is quite an old mystery, and it occurred between the 1st and 2nd of February in 1959, so about like 62 years ago. Yeah. Our parents were kids when this happened. Yeah. Our parents. Yeah. I don't know about your parents. (laughs) This happened. (laughs) They might not have been born. Exactly. So this happened in the Soviet Union, and we're talking like peak Soviet Union. They had just beat us to creating Sputnik, the first man-made satellite, and the morale and economic growth in the country was massive. This was... This was it was a, thriving. It was thriving at the time. And I think that's important because it kind of gives you the world that we're telling this story in. So this incident was so massive, its name, the Dyatlov Pass, actually came from this incident because one of the main guys who did this, his name was Dyatlov. So I don't even know if it had a name before oh, this incident. Oh, really? Okay. So, yeah, this was named after I probably, one of the guys. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, a pass, at least when related to mountains, isn't a common term outside of hikers and outdoorsy people. So just to clarify, if anyone isn't familiar, a pass refers to a known traversable path through, like, mountains along ridgelines and everything. The Dyatlov Pass is located on the side of the Kolatsyakul Mountain, which is part of the larger mountain range known as the Urals, which is in the Ural region of Russia. These Ural Mountains serve as the dividing line between Europe and Asia. I know there's a lot of new names here, so all you need to know is that this incident occurred in a remote area of a large mountainous region in the western part of Russia. And since it was February, it was incredibly cold (laughs) and there was snow everywhere. There was some snow. Mountains, snow, Russia. That's what you need to know. Cool. Got it. (laughs) The best place to start this story is with 
Igor Dyatlov, an engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute. Outside of his studies, Dyatlov was an avid outdoorsman. He regularly would go on multi-day wilderness trips, and he even had a reputation for creating and modifying his own equipment to better serve him on his adventures. Mm. It would not be unfair to characterize him as experienced, ambitious, and capable. In late 1958, he was planning a very ambitious trip, which would end up being his last. It went through an area to which there were no detailed public maps. He designed a route with the help of a geologist, although it is believed no formal finalized route was ever made through the mountains. Essentially, he was planning to wing it. He was totally winging it. Oh, my God. (laughs) He's like, hey, super crazy area. I mean, I do that, too, in town, but I also know I'm never going to actually get lost. It gets even more crazy that he's winging it when I start telling you more about what this adventure entails. Yeah. At the time of the trip's planning, it was believed that no Russian had ever done this route before. Although the native Mansi people of the area, who historically were kind of littered throughout the region would have familiarity with the area. So it's not that no human had been there, but no, like, Russian was like, or this like, happened. Or, like, announced that they've done it. They're like, we just live here. I mean, how trippy is that to think that, like, even in the mid-20th century, there were still parts of the world where it was kind of like, you know, people really haven't been there. And you're like, really? <laughs> haven't we been everywhere? <laughs> yeah. Like, we're just everywhere. I feel like that way with the ocean, it scares the shit out of me. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then there's the ocean. <laughs> we don't know what's, <laughs> what's in there. What's down there? Yeah. There really isn't much down there because nothing's really living in the depth. But yeah, you're right. It's so. I mean, Nessie, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think that was kind of one of the plot lines in the Truman Show is when he was a kid, he wanted to grow up to be an explorer and they had to like shut that down because they didn't want him to know he couldn't leave his town. They're like, right. everything's been discovered. No. So I kind of feel the world is that way. Yeah. Except I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no ambition. I'm just kidding. But this story might make you question what we know and what we don't know. This particular trip, the one that he's winging it, was to take 16 days to complete. Mm. Now, I'm not quite sure what his other trips were like, but nearly two weeks of travel, it's no small feat, Right. the rations alone would be a fair amount of weight. But 16 days becomes more reasonable when you consider that they were also planning on traveling 200 miles. So you keep saying they, so he already has a team. Well, we're getting there. We're okay. going to get to his, okay. his team. I'm going to refer to the group, them as the group, they, the hikers. Sure. Yeah. But they're going to be traveling 200 miles during this time using a mix of cross-country skiing and hiking and climbing. That's over 12 miles a day. And according to an article in the New York Times, just to give everyone some context, the average speed of a hiker is only two miles an hour. Which I assume is an average of all skills from amateur to pro. So I bet right. some people are a little faster. And it's not speed hiking. It's not running. And this is pretty rough terrain. Again, lots of snow. Yeah. Not easy. But if we say two miles an hour, that would be six hours of hiking a day for 16 days straight. Mm-hmm. And that statistic was based on good weather hiking, too. Right. And this is snowy and everything. This was in the winter. It's a very inhospitable part of the planet. The path they were planning was considered a Category 3, which Hmm. is the most difficult rank for a route, at least according to the the Soviet standards of the time. They said this is the most difficult route you can take. This means that they would be hiking through heavy snow, facing high winds, and braving extremely low temperatures. Mm. I don't know about you, but 12 miles a day in those conditions is nothing to scoff at. I can't even do 12 miles in the best conditions right? on sea level. Right. Just we like, go on a hike for like one day, and we're only doing it for like four hours, and we're like, yeah. I'm I, like, woo, we, gotta get a beer. A, and we need a beer now. Wow, that's <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> but anyway, as you can tell from all this, it's an ambitious trip. 
But to skilled and experienced outdoorsmen, it is still very feasible. This isn't like Mm -hmm. you can't do it. It's not like they're preparing themselves up for failure, but it's like this is a beast of a trip. Um, Had they completed the trip, they would have been eligible for the highest hiking certification then offered by the Soviet Union. So this this would have been a big deal. Cool. You and I would have been dead by the end of day one. <laughs> Guaranteed. It's, it just wouldn't happen. But I feel confident to say that some of our more skilled hiking friends would be able to do this without any notable risk, especially if they used my dead body like a Tauntaun in Star Wars. Yeah, they're like, I Cut just... Cut me open. They're like, I'm just going to sleep and chase tonight. <laughs> I'd be nice and warm. Oh, uh, yeah. So Dyatlov, to answer your question earlier, assembled a group of eight people to attempt this journey. They were a mix of his current peers, as well as those who had recently graduated from the school. So they weren't Mm -hmm. all students. Some were just graduates. Okay. They all knew each other to varying degrees of well, fairly well, or, you know, just knew each other. Okay. So get ready for me to butcher some Russian names while I list them out. Exciting. Uh, I'm going to try to not say their full names going on, but I'm trying to give the respect. These people are not alive, and they deserve at least a little bit of respect. So obviously we have Igor Dyatlov, who was Mm -hmm. the group leader. We have Zinaida Kolmogorova, who was known as Zina, uh, or Zina, but I think I'm going to go Zina for the rest of it. Uh, she was a student. We have Yuri Yudin. He was also a student. We have Yuri Doroshenko, also a student. Mm. Alexander Kolevatov, also a student. We have Lyudmila Dobinina, who was known as Lyuda, and she was also a student. <laughs> God, the nickname's hard. It's like, right. We have Yuri, oh, this one's hard. Krivonishenko, there's a lot more letters than I'm pronouncing there. Sure. But he was known as Georgie, and he was a graduate. And this is lucky because, if you haven't noticed, he's the third Yuri I've listed mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. But he's known as Georgie, so he at least has a nickname. He was a graduate. Then we have Rustam Slobodin. He was a graduate. And then we have Nicol- Nicolae Thibault Brinolis. Uh, he was a graduate, and his name has French. He has, like, French in his family, which... So I, I said that one badly, too. Okay. Uh, so in addition to this group, his school added a 10th member. Mm. This member was less known to them. Some didn't even know who he was. He was kind of the weird oddball. Was he like a guide or like why did they nope. add him? No, 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 no. He's, he's, he doesn't fit with any of them. He was a World War II vet. This is 1958, by the way. He was a World War II oh, vet wow. and appeared to be a bona fide badass. He was described as having <laughs> tattoos. Typical for the time. Sure, of course. And metal tipped teeth. His huh. his name was Semyon Alexievich Zolotaryov. But he went by Sasha sometimes. Oh my god. Well. <laughs> but I'm gonna refer to him as Semyon because all the research calls him Semyon. Okay. In Ooh. total, the group was eight men and two women. The girls, both the girls were the youngest of the group at 21 and 22 years old, and most of the men were around 23 or 24. The oldest guy, uh Semyon, was 38. So mm-hmm. he was Noticeably different. Much of the information about their trip has been extracted from both cameras and diaries found at the campsite. Multiple diaries were kept by all the different members of the group, but they also had a single group diary that everyone could add to. Oh, okay. In total, there were six diaries recovered. And one of those diaries is a little confusing because they don't know who it belonged to. (gasps) It didn't have any name, and it wasn't attributed to a specific hiker. And they couldn't even tell for sure whose it was. They can make assumptions, though, that it wasn't the people who had other diaries, but they can't even guarantee that. So we have a mystery diary. So it could have been 
So they couldn't just compare other writings to the the journal. Did they ever mention that? Because like you said, they were students. So if they were students and they were in theory be writings like papers or something from the university or anything like that, and they couldn't compare it. And if none of them, then my assumption would have been maybe the vet or something like that. So that's actually a good way to look at it. Uh, None of what I read suggested they compared it to any of their previous student writings, which is actually really smart. And I feel stupid for not thinking of that. But they said compared to other journal entries, they couldn't make an exact comparison, I mean, like on the group journal and everything okay. like this. They probably did think of it and then couldn't still. Uh, you're you're overestimating the abilities of Soviet Union investigators in the fifties. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but all we do know is that we just assume the people who wrote the other four diaries. It's not one of them. Okay. It's somebody else. Got it. Unless somebody had two diaries and was writing between two, Secret which is weird. Diary. Yeah. Uh, there are some conspiracy theories that suggest it was a planted diary, but there is nothing in it that doesn't corroborate anything else said, and it doesn't say anything weird. So, Oh, well, that's weird. Yeah. So the group left the school on January 23rd, which they were to take a series of trains and buses to reach the actual beginning of their journey. So they weren't just like hiking from the school. They had to get there first for where they were going to do their hike. The train ride featured all typical types of mischief you would assume from college-aged kids. Several of them hid within the train in an effort to avoid buying tickets because, you know, they're cheap, as college students are. (laughs) One of them was apprehended temporarily by police for singing a song which was not allowed at the particular train station where it happened. Remember, communist Russia. Right. At one point, a drunk passenger accused them of stealing a bottle of vodka from him. Although the drunk was removed from the train, notes in the journals have led to speculation that they may have indeed stolen the vodka. Oh, my God. It was a mix of train and bus rides over the next several days. Now, they claimed that they were not going to smoke at all during this trip. Sure. And some people said that there was claims that they weren't going to have any alcohol. I couldn't find anything to substantiate that, but I did read in the journals about how they weren't going to be smoking. Okay. I think they were drinking. At least to some degree, they were drinking. I believe it. I feel like we would. Oh, we we can't go on a trip without drinking. I'm like, like uh, I could die. Half our trips are to go to places to drink. <laughs> it's a really good motivator. So in between these train rides, most of the time they stayed overnight at local schools. So I think that's definitely like a sign of the different times. They could like go to a school and they're like, yo, we're just like students and we're on our way to a hike. Can we chill at your school? And they're like, yeah. sure. And they'll like give them like access to a stove and, the, and a warm place to sleep. Like a bathroom like, and all that stuff, yeah. If, if I try to go to like a high school in the middle of the night and say, can I sleep here? No one's even at the One, high school. One, there wouldn't be anyone there and everything would be locked. So you're there like, no, fuck off. And if there was like some unfortunate security guard, he'd be like, go away, I'm calling the cops. He just tases you. He's like, please leave. <laughs> So, but one night they did stay at a hotel as one of the last nights, and on one night they even went to a club where they sang, and they claimed in the books, drank, and, you know, had a really party time. Okay. Sounded like they were going a little crazy. I'm assuming they were getting hammered They and totally drunk. were also smoking. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you, if you read the journal entries like I was, I was reading translations, obviously, in English. Their spirits were definitely high, and the journals indicated that they were kind of treating this like a vacation as yeah. opposed to like they're all very excited a hard journey exactly so on the 26th of january uh that was their final day of vehicular travel to where they would get to the starting point of their journey and this was the roughest one they rode on the back of trucks exposed to the open air oh. and this is it's freezing cold out there and the trucks were in a really sad state allegedly having broken shock absorbers and no brakes 
during this oh ride. God. What? No breaks? Yeah. I don't know if that means, maybe he meant to say crappy breaks and it was a mistranslation because I don't know how they do this. Maybe they're going slow. I have no idea. <laughs> but during the ride, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, fell ill. Mm. The ride, which I'm sure sucked for everyone, was especially bad for him as it inflamed his sciatica. So mm. I don't know too much about sciatica, but it's kind of like an inflamed or pinched nerve and it yeah. kind of affects like your back. So the following day, January 27th, they arrived at the starting point of their journey. It was a settlement called Second Northern and it was an abandoned geological site. There are many houses that were empty and in disrepair. And only one of them was suitable for them to stay in. Mm. It was at this point that Yuri Yudin made the decision not to continue on the journey out of fears that his condition would make the journey difficult, if not impossible. Right. They split his supplies amongst the remaining nine members, and Yudin collected numerous mineral samples in the area to bring back to the school with him. The group set up in the one habitable shelter for the night. On the morning of the 28th, Yuri Yudin formally parted ways and began his return journey to the school. He would be the only one of the group to survive. All right. The group traveled around 10 kilometers over the course of the day. They remarked that the weather was nice, being only negative 8 degrees Celsius, which is (laughs) 17.6 degrees Fahrenheit, which actually isn't that bad. Yeah. Um, Photos taken during the day showed them primarily using their skis to traverse the landscape, and the weather looked calm. Uh, visibility was high. This was the first night they slept in tents during this trip, and journal entries claim they sang and talked until the late morning hours. Nice. Over the next several days, from the 29th to the 30th of February, they continued with few issues. Early on their trek, they were brought to a old Mansi trail, which if you remember from um, me mentioning earlier, they were the native people of the region. Sure. They followed that trail for most of the day. Uh, Zena's journal mentioned that they saw many Mansi signs and writings in the trees along the trail. They took photos of them, and I have to admit that the signs are quite ominous looking. Many of the signs look like sections of bark removed from the trees with dark markings written in them. I have never seen Mansi writing before, but it definitely looked unfamiliar and a bit creepy. The temperature continued to drop over the course of of these few days down to negative 24 degrees Celsius, which is negative 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that's getting cold. Yeah, I'm not about that. And to make it worse, a wind also began to pick up, worsening each of these days. Yeah. So I'm out. You can see the Mansi writing in a tree there. Ooh, let's see. Oh yeah. It's a little creepy, huh? It's ver. It's so it's like uh, vertical. They writing. wrote it vertical, yeah. Yeah, that looks kind of cool, actually. The 31st of January was the final day of journal entries. The weather had grown increasingly bad, and the group diary notes that they were only traveling at a speed of around 1.5 kilometers or one mile an hour. Yeah. The snow was allegedly 1.2 meters deep, and visibility had dropped to around 100 meters. Photos from this day show a very inhospitable environment. Towards the end of the day, they decided to create a cache of goods for the return journey and prepare for a difficult climb the next day where they would reach Kolatsyakl. Ooh. I wonder what their morale would have been. Like, I don't know. I think they were coping for, like, really good weather. But if you go in and it just starts getting worse and worse, I'm like... I don't want to die. Like, do we keep going? What's ha- going on? I have to admit, I think they would have been prepared, knowing know. that weather can get bad, and and they had equipment. They had yeah. good equipment to handle all this stuff. Um, so I bet they didn't like it, and they knew it was going slow, and maybe it might delay them a day or two. But yeah. I bet they were like, "I oh, will pull through." Bad weather doesn't last forever. It's usually just I mean, a I guess days. if you're already going and do something like this, you are already in, like an extremist. I mean, you're well prepared. The next day, February first was rather unsuccessful for the team. 
They only traversed around two kilometers of distance during the entire day. That's nothing. Mm -hmm. Like, that's absolutely nothing. Yumi walked farther to get coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Due well, to the coffee's important. That's why. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's true. I, they should have known there was they coffee. They should have known. <laughs> Due to the horrendous weather conditions, they were taken off course up the slope of Kolatsyakl. They ended up setting up camp on the mountainside far from the protection of the forested area downhill, which was about mm. one and a half kilometers away. Only speculation exists as to why Dyatlov decided to camp on the mountain slope. There are no formal journal entries for this night. The last known writing from them actually took the form of a satirical propaganda leaflet that they created. We will get back to this leaflet a little later on, but no additional documentation was recorded by the Dyatlov group, and they would continue no further on their journey. This is where the mystery really begins. Yay! Dyatlov had informed his school sports club that he would send a telegram upon his return to Vizhaya. It's either Vizhail or Vizhai. Dyatlov predicted that this would have been completed by the 12th of February, no later okay. than. That day came and went, and no word from the group. Eight days afterwards, on the 20th, many family members of the missing travelers became increasingly worried and insisted that a rescue operation must take place. Yeah. At first, the rescue comprised only of students and teachers who were strictly volunteers, but soon the military would involve itself. On the 26th, the campsite the Dyatlov group had set up 25 days earlier on the side of the mountain mm. was finally found. So 25 days later, after the eight days that they were... No, so so or, they found it 25 days after the last day we know that they, they were alive when they set up the oh, tent. Oh, okay. So to, they weren't found until 25 days. That They found the tent 25 days later. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So before I continue, I do want to apologize because some of what I'm going to describe might be graphic. Since a lot of the remaining story I'm going to talk about has specifically to do with this stuff mm -hmm. i can't give a um a warning like you did on the last one that come back uh after a few minutes it's pretty much going to be bad the rest of the story so i apologize it's right because you have to keep referencing and all yeah. that stuff i get it it's not I get super it. kid friendly so i do apologize we are going to talk about dead people uh so if it's not for you this might be the right time to stop at the campsite rescuers found the group's tent it was badly damaged and only partly standing it was covered in snow and nobody was inside. It looked as though it had been damaged from a sideways motion and not from above. When they examined the contents of the tent, mm -hmm. they discovered that the tent was still full of all the hikers' personal items, including boots, clothes, and they were all arranged in an orderly fashion. Cameras, journals, and even the heating stove were all there. There was even food arranged out in a fashion as if they were in the process of preparing it. Ooh. So this means it was left unexpectedly yeah but even more troubling was that according to those investigating the tent it appears as though it had been cut open from the inside <gasps> immediately around the tent they were able to make out the footsteps of what appeared to be nine individuals however the tracks would suggest that they belonged to people who were wearing socks barefoot and one set of a person who was actually wearing a single shoe and a couple boots Okay. The tracks also suggested that the people were moving in a consistent and normal pace, grouped together, not panicked, or spread out. The tracks could only be followed for 500 meters before they were covered in snow, but they were leading in a direction of the nearby woods down the mountain about one and a half kilometers away. Okay. A flashlight was found about 450 meters away from the tent along this path. 
When rescuers reached the edge of the forest, they found the remains of a small fire under a large tree. Near the fire, they found two bodies belonging to both of the Yuris, Georgi, also known as Yuri Kravonyshenko, and Yuri Doroshenko, both of whom were only wearing underwear and large amounts of their skin were completely exposed. And they were purposely there setting up a fire. It looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. So neither of them had shoes on, and there was a large number of bruises and cuts all over their bodies. So it looks like, it looks weird. Okay, There is a fire, and they're naked. (laughs) Like, not naked naked, but I mean... Basically, for the weather, you might as well be naked, yeah. They were wearing less clothes than I do on a beach. Yeah. Just saying. So, like I said, they had bruises and cuts all over their bodies. Georgie had third-degree burns on one of his shins and one of his feet. His fingers were blackened, and he had a chunk of his own right hand bit off (gasps) in his mouth. Oh, my God. It has been suggested that this was either because his hands were becoming unresponsive or because he was trying to keep himself from yelling out, like maybe he was hoping he wouldn't be caught or something. Yeah. These are theories, of course. He is he also had linear cuts along his thighs, one suggestion that this was could have been from when the others were cutting the clothes from his body. Mm-hmm. Bits of his nose were missing, but the lack of blood suggested that that may have been consumed by animals post-mortem. Oh, okay. His cause of death was ruled to be hypothermia. Yuri had a sock, the other Yuri, had a sock that was burned and charred and had signs of burned hair on one side of his head. He also had a gray fluid on his cheek, suggesting pressure had been placed on his chest. This could have been from a fall from the tree, but it has also been noted by experts to mirror the results of forceful interrogation applied by Russian special forces at the time. Some of the bruises to his body Mm -hmm. have been suggested by experts to be the result of himself hitting himself. On solid objects in the area, possibly as a result of being in extreme agony. The amount of urine found in his bladder was extremely small, much lower than should exist in a body that succumbed to hypothermia. Despite this, experts ruled his death to have been hypothermia. Both of the bodies also showed signs of liver mortis, which is a pooling of the blood that Mm -hmm. happens after you die. And they noticed on several parts of the body, and they were on the upper parts of the body, suggesting that the bodies had been moved or rotated sometime after they had died. Oh my gosh. The tree that was next to them also had several disturbing clues about it. 12 or so feet up, there were signs of broken branches and skin embedded in the bark. (gasps) It has been suggested that they were desperately attempting to climb the tree, which destroyed the flesh in their hands. Why were they attempting to climb the tree at this point? I'm not sure, and it is a point of contention. Some have suggested that they were looking for a high vantage point, perhaps to spot their campsite. Mm -hmm. Others have suggested that maybe they were trying to get away from something and reaching higher ground out of fear. Yeah. Hanging in the cedar trees above their bodies were several articles of clothing that were believed to have been from both of the Yuris. They were hanging on the branches with no explanation. Yeah, that's the part that really gets me because... Uh Uh-huh. There really isn't a reason to take off your clothes, especially if you're in a tree. Exactly. So <laughs> That would be hard. Yeah. And we're going to get a little, we're going to talk a little bit more about the clothes in a second. The next day, they found the bodies of Igor Dyatlov, who was 300 meters from the tree, Zina Kolmogorova, who was 480 meters from the tree, and it took six more days for them to find the body of Rustem Slobodin, who himself was 480 meters from the tree. Investigators have suggested that they were attempting to return to the campsite because they all appeared to be in a line stretching towards the general location, and they were also facing that way. All of them were better dressed than the bodies under the cedar, but it was still not enough for the environment that they were in. Mm. They were also without shoes, 
Igor's body showed considerably less injuries than the previous bodies, but the most notable injury he did have was bruises on his metacarophalangeal joints consistent with injuries sustained during hand-to-hand fights. No obvious internal injuries were found, and the urine in his bladder was consistent with hypothermia. Zena's body was the most dressed of the three. She had numerous bruises and abrasions on her face and had jagged wounds and missing flesh on her right hand. Most notably was that she had a long, large bruise on her torso that looks as though it were inflicted by a baton. Jeez. The urine in her bladder was consistent with hypothermia, and her death was ruled to have been caused by hypothermia, but as a result of a violent accident. So she was injured and she couldn't... Yeah. He, okay. Yeah, exactly. Rustin was also well-dressed and actually had a single boot on. Investigations show that he had a crack on his skull consistent with a blunt trauma from a hard object. Although the crack was deemed to not be a fatal blow, its existence is puzzling. What happened to him? It can be assumed that it occurred that night and that as there was no mention of injury in any of the journals up Mm -hmm. to that point. The injury was enough to have caused disorientation. He had numerous bruises on his head consistent with the notion that he fell multiple times and hit his head on the ground each time. He had numerous bruises to his extremities that are not consistent with those that would occur during the final moments of someone struggling with death either Mm -hmm. from hypothermia or otherwise. He also had bruised knuckles like Igor consistent with a fist fight. What would be the inconsistent stuff? Like, so uh, they were kind of showing if someone was flailing around and everything, the kinds of injuries he had were not consistent with that. Oh, I see what you're saying now. Yeah. Okay. I I was a little confused by it as well, but I, I'm leading. I'm leaving this to forensic researchers who said these do not look like the injuries he would have if he were like in agony and like you know rolling around or anything. That's not how these injuries would have occurred. He had injuries to his extremities that looked so like, like they, they had to have been cause. caused to him instead of him causing them on himself. Very likely. Okay, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, his death was ruled to have been hypothermia. The, the other, ultimate cause, I guess, but not what got him there. <laughs> exactly. The other four hikers remained missing. The harsh environment made search and rescue efforts difficult. Two months later, that's right, two months mm. later, on May 5th, a Mansi hunter discovered a pile of broken branches and several pieces of clothing. A makeshift snow den was then discovered nearby. It was 75 meters from the cedar tree, deeper in the woods and therefore even further from the original campsite. Yeah. When rescuers were alerted, they came to investigate. The area had been previously searched, but the avalanche probes that they used to like dig down into the snow mm-hmm. didn't go deep enough. They didn't find anything. This time they went further down and discovered human flesh. Oh. It turns out this area had 10 feet of snow on it, which they had no idea it was that deep. So that's why the probes didn't go right. that far. I mean, like who'd assumed this is 10 feet deep? Yeah. Beneath the snow surface, they discovered the bodies of the final four victims. They were grouped together, and it appears as though they were attempting a well-known survival technique in which they dig a hole to protect themselves from the surface elements and put an arrangement of branches on the ground to keep their bodies from having direct contact with the snow. The branches were obviously cut with a knife, yet no knife has ever been found. Yeah, and despite the creation of this patch of sticks for protection, the bodies were found several meters away from it, lying in a rocky stream that was buried under the snow. 
All four of the victims were wearing far more clothing than the original five who had already been found. Investigators suggest that there was evidence that the others had died first and the clothes had either been given or taken by the remaining four members. Mm. Some of the evidence to suggest this was that these four were wearing clothing items that belonged to other members of the team and that many of the clothes showed evidence of damage as if they had been ripped or cut off of people. As horrendous as the deaths of the previous five had been, Nothing prepared the investigators for these bodies. Despite evidence that these four were making good efforts to survive in these conditions and wearing more clothing, their causes of death are baffling. Nicolay was well-dressed, having layers, gloves, and even boots. It was suggested that he may have been outside the tent when whatever happened occurred owing to his more prepared nature. Despite this luxury, he had severe damage to his skull with pieces of bone penetrating his brain. This was more than enough damage to prove fatal. The injury would have required considerable force and would have undoubtedly resulted in a concussion, possibly even unconsciousness. Mm Mm-hmm. Liuta and Semyon's bodies were both well-dressed, well enough that experts say they could have survived in the makeshift shelter that they had created. Hmm. Their cause of death was not hypothermia. (laughs) Both of them had crushed chest cavities, (gasps) including numerous broken ribs. Investigators likened the damage as requiring immense force, such as those of an automobile crash or a shockwave from a bomb blast. There was little damage to the soft tissue consistent with those of a shockwave blast. Mm -hmm. Liuta had a hemorrhage in her right atrium of her heart. She was found lying against a ridge face down with water from the stream pouring over parts of her body. Both of her eyeballs were missing, and so was her tongue. Oh my god. I remember that. Her cause of death was ruled as being due to the hemorrhage and internal bleeding. It is estimated that she died no more than 20 minutes after receiving these injuries. Semyon's body was also missing its eyeballs. Semyon was assumed to have possibly survived longer after receiving his injuries. One peculiar point of note is that Semyon had a camera around his neck. Now, why on earth would he have a camera when so many people didn't even have shoes? Had he been outside the tent before whatever happened, what would he be trying to take pictures of? Right. Despite both Liuta and Semyon having similar chest injuries, the notable differences in them, height and angle, suggest that they might have been from different events, not the same event. But that can't be guaranteed or proven. It has also been suggested by investigators that the eyes and possibly tongue being missing were the result of post-mortem damage from local wildlife, mm-hmm. animals eating them and whatnot. Right. Is that how they saw it? Like, you know what I mean? If it was an animal, they might see like little teeth marks They didn't on the see tongue. that kind of thing. And okay. most of those suggestions actually came from later on. Oh. Um, there are some people who say that there was a brown mucus-like substance in um, Leota's stomach. And it would suggest that she had consumed blood and coagulated blood suggesting that her tongue was removed before she died. While she was, okay, while she was alive, yeah. But there's people who were dealing with, you know, 60-year-old autopsy evidence, and it's kind of hard That's to That's hard, say. yeah, okay. Yeah. And lastly, we have Alexander Kolevatov, who I think is probably the most interesting of all the bodies. <laughs> Although not as well-dressed as the others around him, he was still decently protected, more so than any of the other people, and the only thing he was really missing was shoes. He was also the only one of the four to not have such a traumatic injury to his body. In fact, the autopsy and findings of his body are left largely unaddressed and undiscussed. He had a deformed neck, 
bruises behind his ear, and damage to his nose. But it's unclear if the injuries are consistent with being out of in the elements for four months or if it was due to some sort of trauma to his body. Mm-hmm. One source suggested that these wounds were consistent to a type of killing performed by Russian special forces. Ooh. But the lack of evidence released makes this problematic. I'm not quite sure why he died. No one seems to be quite sure why he died. <laughs> they didn't even say that his official cause of death was hypothermia. It, as far as I can tell, was left unmentioned, which makes it... They just like, uh, let's just not talk about that one. It gets a little confusing to me. Now, as crazy as all of this is, there's one last thing that makes this investigation even more bizarre. And this is probably my favorite part of this whole thing. During the investigation, they found that articles of clothing that both Alexander and Lyuta were wearing were radioactive. Dun, dun, dun. I remember. It's like the thing that really uh-huh. just... I think You're I remember... Like, what? Yeah, I'm like, okay, so Bear, maybe they did get in contact with some dangerous people, but why would they be out there? And then you're like, and radiation. I remember just... And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like on the on the boat with you initially, but now I'm just like, okay, you just threw a radiation bomb on me. And there is no denying at this point, the radiation still remains the biggest problem with every theory. Right. So so we're going we're gonna to talk more about the radiation in a second. But all of this is evidence that was released officially in reports. Mm-hmm. None of this was, like, suggested or conjecture at this point. This is stuff that we have photos, we have journals, this is all the official stuff. There's a few pieces of information discussed in it by people later on that weren't part of official reports. Okay. But, so before we begin, there were other things that some people mentioned, uh, having seen or bits of evidence that were never in the official report, and we'll get back to those later. I think okay. this is a perfect time for us to take a break, Ooh, and we'll talk okay. about theories and problems and ideas when we come back. Okay, sounds good, because I need a drink. Absolutely, because, you know, hopefully not a radioactive one. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, guys, we're back from the break, and I have a drink in hand, so I am so ready to hear all the crazy things that you're probably going to tell me now. <laughs> all the theories and what have you. Well, but... Before I go into the crazy theories, and I've cherry-picked the ones I think are the best, I'm really curious to hear what you have to think about all the crazy stuff I've already told you. Because at this point, it's people's theories, Mm -hmm. which means what you have to say about it is, in my opinion, just as valid. So I want to know. I mean, I know. It's a little tough, because since I do know the story a little bit, I feel like I might spoil some theories that I've already heard. So I don't know if it's something that I even came up with at this point. That's fine. But... Things that obviously, to me, whenever I hear the story, I'm always wondering, okay, duh, the radioactive clothing, what the hell? Are they near a bomb site? Are they just naturally getting more radioactive the deeper they go in there? And that's why they were being stopped because experiments were being performed by the government that they didn't want to know. <laughs> um, also, what's up with climbing trees <laughs> with no clothes? Why would you take those off? And uh, missing body parts. Yeah, like, it's insane. So you're like, oh, yeah, an animal, but an animal can't do everything that it did. So I don't know. I, I, I want to talk about it as we go along. And there's also no animal tracks that they could find. Oh, that's right. There were no animal tracks. I remember that. Yeah. Maybe it's just like a flying pterodactyl. So what makes all our theories difficult is that we are talking about Soviet Russia. And like any government, but... The Soviets were, you know, infamous for this. They're mm-hmm. going to withhold information. They're going to hide information. Everything's going to be a bit tailored. So the big question is, what do we not know about this? Like that one guy's death. We still mm-hmm. aren't quite sure why he's dead. And why were they even testing for radiation on these clothing? That seems right. like a weird thing to do. 
I want to talk about that radiation first. I think it's the most <laughs> okay. important thing. So before we get directly to theories, we should talk about a few bits of evidence that are the most intriguing and the most troubling. So Leota's sweater tested positive, but it belonged to Georgie, the guy who died under the cedar tree. Are you talking about, now we're talking about the guy you said, right? So Leota is the, the woman who was found in the stream. She was one of the last four. Okay, you got to say you got to say where the body, because I'm not going to remember the names. No, totally. <laughs> Sorry. So Leota, who was of the last four, she's the one who had the chest trauma right and she was found in the stream okay um she her sweater tested positive for massive amounts of radiation okay but that sweater belonged to georgie now this is notable and which one was georgie georgie was one of the guys who died under the tree he was one of the yuris he died under the tree so he wasn't wearing much when they found him gotcha and it's important to note that this sweater did belong to him because georgie did work at the mayoc nuclear complex remember he was one of the Mm. graduates he wasn't there and about two years before this event, uh, there was a massive nuclear disaster at the Mayotte complex that Georgie was one of the people who had to clean it up or help. You know, oh, the really? So all of a sudden you're like, OK, maybe he had items that were exposed to radiation. But that was also two years ago. Yeah. And this was a high amount of radiation. And it's you'd think that if he was at this, they would have, you know, Checked him with dosimeters, and so... You would think. (laughs) But it is important, like, this is the only time you can try to explain where this radiation came from in a uh, non-creepy or bizarre way, is that he worked at this uh, nuclear facility, and maybe that's how he got it. But it doesn't explain the radiation on Alexander, because it was on his his sweater waistband and his pants. And which one's Alexander again? He is one of the other... He's the guy who's... We're not sure how he died. And he died next to the girl, too. So they both had radioactive stuff. But his none of his clothes belong to Georgie. So why are they radioactive? And it's like, oh, well, maybe Mm. they were close by. Well, then everything should have kind of shown off radiation. But it doesn't. Did they test, like, the tents and everything? They apparently tested everything. Because they actually moved the tent. Okay. And everything. All the bodies were, like, brought back to storage facilities and investigated and seen and tested and everything. So that was all they found that was radioactive. Okay. Now, the radiation was consistent with either direct contact with radioactive substances or from radioactive dust settling from the atmosphere. But another issue about these radioactive substances is these people were found, remember, they were next to that stream with Mm -hmm. a lot of running water. And there's something called rinsing where you can rinse radioactive stuff and it actually does lower its radioactive properties, you know, because some of the stuff's getting washed away. So a lot of these clothes were like constantly in water for oh, months shit. and they were still detecting high with radiation. So the assumption is they were even higher in radiation. It must have been beforehand. massive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to tell exactly how radioactive they might have been. Um, and it also brings up the question, why were they even testing for radiation? These are hikers in the middle of nowhere. This shouldn't have even it been It wouldn't something. even occur. But the fact that they were testing, I guess you could say maybe it's practice that all investigations do it, but it still seems fishy to me. The fact that they tested the radiation brings up the idea of cover-up or government involvement. Yeah. It's, it's just there. That's what I'm thinking. I hate saying the word cover-up, but <laughs> oh my God, does that scream it. Another point of contention, other piece of evidence that needs to be addressed is the liver mortis. So if you remember, several oh, yeah. of the bodies, they were found to have liver mortis on parts of the body suggesting that they may have been rotated after they had died. Yeah. So on one hand, since it suggests that they may have been moved, you could go, oh, there were other people involved in the area. They had moved the bodies mm-hmm. that had been tampering. Once again, saying cover up, cover up, cover up. But it is possible that the medical examiner misdiagnosed 
the visual evidence. Due to the variety of things that happen to bodies when they are both frozen, thawed, moved, refrozen, etc. Yeah. Frostbite can look a little similar to liver mortis, and it is possible that the medical uh, examiner misdiagnosed frostbite. Oh, that makes sense because it does turn black. It po- like it changes like colors. Water. Yeah, or so, pull blood. So I don't know what to say about this. I'm not enough of an expert, and I did look at the forensic photos. I do not recommend it to people. <laughs> I can it. tell it would have been very difficult to tell the difference. So part of me is excited to think, oh, their bodies have been moved. There's a lot of conspiracy here, but then at the same time. You're talking 60 years ago. I mean, who knows? It, yeah, it could have been that. So, so whether or not that's an important piece of evidence, that's kind of up for you to decide. And the the last piece of interesting evidence is the camera that was found on. Semyon. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it should be noted that of so so when they pulled out the the film, mm-hmm. the film was allegedly ruined by water, but they still tried to develop what they could. Mm-hmm. That said, of all the film they pulled out, several of the photographs are missing. Boo. They developed a lot of it. You can tell it has been cut. You know, the film may have been ruined, but it still would have been a full thing. So I know what you mean, yeah. Film, film has been intentionally cut and removed from this. Mm. And it's gone, and no one knows what was on it. It's not, like, talked about in the evidence, and then you just can't find it. It's, it's not even mentioned. Gone. It's like, no, these are the photos. That's it. Exactly. That is so suspicious. So this could either be because of a government cover-up or... Be honest, piss poor cataloging of items. It looks intentional Maybe. that they're missing, but you know. I we, mean, they could argue and say, "Well, we put only in evidence of pictures that developed correctly." Well, I mean, they they were supposed to keep everything, and so all the other cameras, everything is there. Oh. Uh, even even when they have a bad photo, it's all there. But this one has intentionally cut and removed frames of film. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh huh. It's beyond weird. In 2015. The destroyed film from, at least the existing, destroyed film from Semyon's camera was analyzed Mm. in depth. What can be seen is minimal at best, and most of it appears to be of singular bright lights. So scary. One of the lights, one of the images, looks like the bright light is depicting a multi-stage rocket. But (sighs) you can't tell. This is all subjective, mind you. So, you know, a lot of this is interpretive. We don't know for sure because this was in water. So it is ruined. It is intriguing, though. One of the photos described as three heads appears to show the tops of three people's heads with a large bright light behind them in the back. Now, since we're not sure exactly how they got damaged, maybe these were totally normal photographs. And this is all we can see. Or maybe he was taking pictures in the dark of bright lights in the sky. See, that would be more, that would make more sense. But maybe not. I don't know. Because, like, uh. you never, it's so, it's so frustrating because you're, like, about to say something and then you're like, but that doesn't make any sense either. Nothing makes sense. Like, nothing fits and that for what part, they're doing. The whole light part yeah. totally ties into some theories I'm going to get to in a minute that aliens explain the end of episode <laughs> encounter angle of this. Yeah. But right before we get to those fun ones, one theory that was, has been posed by a lot of people, because if you remember the bloody knuckles. Yeah, he actually fought something. Yeah, a lot of the bruises on the faces, a lot of the injuries, you know, blunt force trauma to the head. One theory is that they were attacked by people, like yeah. maybe Russian special forces, maybe Russian military, or even Monsi people who were in the area and pissed oh, off. Right. The, like the broken neck and the baton-like injury so, are really interesting. I mean, I understand that, but like I also feel like if it was other people, they would have taken their things exactly and that's actually one of the primary theories against yeah. this they said items weren't taken yeah also the monsi people are 
relatively peaceful. They would have no interest in doing this. We also don't have tracks of other people near the tent. Right. Where it would have had to have started right. for them to cut out. And I hate to mention this, but it is brought up in the research a lot that should be mentioned, is that both of the women, during their autopsy, it was determined that neither of them had been sexually active any time in the recent events. Okay. And I hate having to admit this, but it seems... If it was a like violent attack, there probably would have been some like violent rape or other something. things, yeah. People suck. Yeah, and people suck. the fact that that didn't happen at least goes against the idea that maybe people had attacked them. So stuff wasn't stolen, women weren't... You know, horribly I mean, abused. they would have had to have just gone there only to kill people. But what a random place to decide to do that. So uh, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Unless, as some people said, people came to the tent, their tracks are missing, a fight ensued, and then the people ran down the mountain. And then all their deaths occurred afterwards. And the people went away. So Yeah, you know, but still, the tracks are still not agreed. there. Agreed. That's, so. that's a big point of yeah. contention. It also doesn't explain the giant traumas to the chest which could not have been mm-hmm. caused by a fist fight they're just too impactful like how did that happen yeah now now that i got that one out of the way i don't like that example it doesn't make sense to me you'd think especially if it was like russian forces or whatnot there would be bullets involved people would have been yeah. shot and everything so that theory it's it's a big theory a lot of people talk about it but i don't buy it and it I just doesn't fit with anything to would me. like to assume that they would have covered their tracks and i don't mean like their actual footprints like you know as they might have but i mean like they would have, I don't know, no. not left something, not left them so exposed or like. Mm-hmm. But it is intriguing to think when they say there's that the possibility that the guy like bit his hand so he wouldn't scream out. Maybe they were hiding. Yeah. That's there. Also, I like to, I mean, I kind of get it. Like if you're biting yourself to prevent from doing something else, but biting myself, I would have yelled because it would hurt. <laughs> so <laughs> right? I'm like, wait, this isn't and taking off a whole chunk of flesh in your mouth. Right. That's, that's what extreme. I mean. I would have started crying. I'm like, that's going to be loud. That sounds more like someone who's either delusional or maybe they have like frostbite and they're testing and they don't realize their own strength, you know? Well, like if you have hypothermia at that point, you might have not realized. You're a little bonkers. Well, not just that. I mean, yeah, for sure. But also, um, you, you might not be able to feel your hands anymore. Oh, true. So true. you didn't even realize how hard you were biting. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So, let's get to the fun theories then. Or at least, yeah. What I consider the fun theories. Um, Number one, the big most out there one. (laughs) They were attacked by a Yeti. Ooh, Yeti. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about track marks. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, so they suggest on the night of February 1st, the Dyatlov group was attacked by a cryptid known as a Yeti. Now, if you don't know what a Yeti is, it's kind of an abominable snowman kind of like bigfoot sasquatch yeah, yeah he's got a whole history and i'm sure there's actually a future episode that's going to be about the yeti because it's cool i guarantee it yeah so um we're not going to go into his history or anything but just imagine like a giant bear man creature Fluffy. yeah that attacked them with big feet so where did this theory come from apart from people just being like i bet it's the yeti well there <laughs> actually there actually is a reason that this theory came about so a lot of people with this theory got it because of a bad translation. If you remember, the last piece of writing from the group was a satirical propaganda paper they created, not journal oh entries. Oh my gosh. And on it, they wrote, this is a actual translation. This is a correct translation of what they wrote as one of the fake news articles. In recent, quote, in recent years, there has been a heated debate about the existence of Yeti. According to recent reports, Yeti lives in the northern Ural region near Mount Atorton, mm-hmm. end quote, which was kind of where they were near. So it's supposed to be funny. And if and I read the entire satirical pamphlet. They were joking about a bunch of stuff. So it just 
feels like everything was supposed to be funny. However, yeah. original translations of this section were done a bit weird. And the translation that originally came out, they thought it said, quote, from now on, we know that the snowmen exist, end quote. Ooh. Which sounds way more ominous and way creepier. So right. I can't speak Russian, so I'm very curious where the in-between lies, how this translation yeah. happened. They didn't have any journal entries. They're maybe like, they were it's s- a joke, and they're like, they just confirmed it. Exactly. Yeah. And, so and it's like, like, what if they were scared? And the reason they only went like one and a half meter, or like one and a half kilometers that day is they saw weird creepy creatures they were scared they set up for the night and then they were attacked in the middle of the night so it's a neat theory but uh once again there's no tracks it's not i was gonna say if anyone's gonna leave massive tracks it's gonna be the yeti and if people are concerned that maybe the tracks were covered up yes maybe maybe there is a government cover-up and there were other tracks but at the same time uh you can see photographs of the investigation you can see photographs Mm -hmm. of the tracks and you can see photographs of the whole area campsite where they found it. Yeah. There's just no evidence of any other tracks near the tent. It doesn't look like any other living creature was anywhere near the tent. Right. And so this is the last of theories that involves another animal being, or another living creature being near the tent. Okay. And so it's unlikely, although I have to admit, there is an amazing idea of a giant creature coming and uh, attacking people. In the I know. The Not that it. I wish this upon anyone, but oh, it would have no. been, but if, you know, it would have been pretty cool if it was Yeti. <laughs> exactly. So going back to some of the stuff we were talking earlier about the radiation and the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. It's time to talk about the UFO theories. Yay. So the lead prosecutor of the investigation claims that he was told he couldn't mention his theories on the subject in the report that he created in 1959. He mentioned this, I believe, in like 1990. He said, I wasn't allowed to say this, but I'm oh, saying wow. it now. He, he waited a long time. He waited until after the fall of the Soviet Union. The sure, yeah. He claims that there was evidence of scorch marks and burning on select trees in the area. Oh, my God. There was no obvious pattern to the burns, and they had no obvious origin of the damage. It wasn't like, you know, it emanated from somewhere. Random trees were burnt. Mm-hmm. He suggested that perhaps something like a, and I'm quoting him, heat ray. <laughs> Damaged the trees and perhaps was targeting the Dyatlov group as they ran. He suggested that this could have been because of UFOs in the area. It should also be noted that around the time of this incident, and this is important, this is getting into the evidence that wasn't in the official report. Okay. Around the time of this incident, strange lights and balls of fire were seen in the sky in the entire area surrounding the Ural Mountains. Oh my God. We're talking days leading up to this incident and months after (gasps) this incident. That is something that just exists. That's something that has to be mentioned. It had it was not mentioned in the report. I don't remember that. Yeah, so lots of lights and weird stuff going on in the region. Heck yeah. So one of the things I like about this UFO theory is it does address a few of the other contentious issues with what's happening. They suggest that several of the well-dressed members may have been outside the tent and noticed lights in the sky or something at least similarly yeah. suspicious. Why he may have had his camera out. He was taking these pictures of this and another guy was there. Mm -hmm. And so everyone else might have been inside the tent at the time. And it might also explain the radiation signatures. That if something crazy, some weird alien thing was happening. Radiation signatures have been found in other sites of UFO sightings. Exactly. It explains these mysterious scorch marks and not in the official report. It would explain why people might have been scared trying to hide up a tree or anything like this. It just, there's a lot of stuff that does get Maybe they explained by took this. off their clothes thinking uh, they were like bright clothing. You know what I mean? They're like, I don't want them to see me. 
But the clothes were usually like folded up in the tent. And stuff. Oh, okay. So I don't know. it's not like they took them off. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I met the guys in the trees. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think they were just freezing to death. Sure. <laughs> well, actually, hypothermia, um, from what I understand, a lot of people try to take off their clothes. Yes, yeah, so that's called like paradoxical age. undressing. Yeah. And that was one of the theories I actually didn't originally write, but we should talk about it right now. Some people said that maybe that would explain why the clothes were hanging off the trees and why they were missing it. But the fact that every other member looked like they were wearing pieces of those clothing and they had been ripped from them. Like they picked it up or something. They did it with sound mind that the assumption is that didn't actually occur. Okay. That when we're finding them, that they weren't wearing a lot when they ran from the tent, but the ones who are even more naked, it's because when they died, the clothes were taken and and brought onto the other people so they could survive longer. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Um, I like that it explains the radiation because it is the only theory. Oh, no. There's another theory that I'm going to get to. There's only two theories that talk about the radiation. And that one at least says... Radiation, And that's the only piece of information (laughs) where you can't prove the aliens were there because there's no evidence that is like aliens were here. Right. It's all trying to explain weird stuff with aliens. They wouldn't leave tracks. I mean, technically. They left (laughs) scorch marks. They're flying in their little saucers around. Shooting their little heat rate. (laughs) (laughs) It's too cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, don't go out there, man. It's cold. There's humans. Um, So that theory, the UFO theory, ties into this theory because they have a lot of similarities. And that is that the Dyatlov group fell victim to military testing in the area. Mm -hmm. There are records from the Soviet Union that prove that they were practicing parachute mine bombings in the area right around the time of the incident. Some of these mines would detonate upon hitting the ground and some would detonate in the air. These explosions would be consistent with what happened to those that died in the Snowden, you know, Mm -hmm. the chest cavities, the head damage, and perhaps the group awoke to noises in the middle of the night and several of them went outside to see what they could find, explaining why they might have been better dressed. Yeah. And maybe the explosion started getting closer and closer and it caused them all to panic and run. And the last group that fell, they were hit or almost directly hit by one of these explosions and the other people succumbed to hypothermia Yeah, because they were unprepared. And it would make sense that once the military got involved, they're like, wait, where were these Iyagers supposed to be? It's like, let us go with you. And then they could have salvaged a lot of their bomb material could explain why bodies might have been moved why they yeah they moved the bodies are like radiation radiation because of those weird weapons they were testing yeah that's a really good theory i like this one a lot because it isn't super bizarre but it explains things also explains the bright lights people were seeing in the sky if they were detonating bombs yeah exactly so you've got a lot of evidence even the stuff not in the report being explained by this could explain why they're scared yeah Yeah. bodies being moved damage everything like i like this theory i think it's pretty good However, one of the big issues with it is that since the people who would have been hurt by the bomb blast, Mm -hmm. they were the furthest away from the campsite and there's no evidence of a bomb near the campsite. So they would have had to have just been scared and run because they heard explosions, even though they were not near them. So they would have had to been running towards the explosions. Almost, It was like the, yeah, it was like the last group of people. They would have been hit by it. It's almost like they were, yeah, they were running towards the explosions. Okay. So that actually does not make sense. (laughs) It is a bit weird. And some people said, well, what if they were hit first and they were dragged there? I'm like, no, dragging all these bodies when you're not wearing clothes and they're wearing a lot of clothes makes no sense. Also, I would, I want to ask, so the dome makeshift hiding place that they had in the in the trees yeah, like the those Snowden thing right and then they were already hit by the bomb how was that made if they were so exactly so hurt and that's yeah that's become like did the other people do it and then come back and try to go to the tent all this starts making it seem unlikely but why would you leave the dome if you were using it for survival you're it, not like 
oh, now that I made this thing that's going to keep me alive, I should walk around. Exactly. And the people that were <laughs> being protected in the den, you're like, well, can I have some of your clothes while I go hike back to the tent? Right. Yeah, there's some there's some weirdness there. I like a lot that it explains, but it does bring new questions, which I hate when there's new questions. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know how to explain that. Yeah. So then there's another theory. This one's a, a much more recent theory, and oh. that is, this one's pretty grounded too, and its explanation is that there's a phenomenon known as catabatic wind. Some people say catabatic wind. Catabatic, okay. A 2019 investigation into the area brought evidence to suggest the likelihood that strong winds coming down the mountainside could have hit the tent, causing all manner of issues. The weather was already terrible, but catabatic wind is described as hurricane force wind. Ooh. It is so strong that the hikers would not have been able to stay in the tent, would have actually needed to seek shelter in the trees uh, below the mountain. You know, mm -hmm. the, the tent might have been a suffocating experience. They just couldn't have done anything about it. So why didn't it blow the tent? Because it, it was probably like staked down and and or torn. I mean, is yeah. That... So um, when they built the the campsite, they actually yeah. cut into the mountain to kind of give them a wind protection. Oh. And so there's a chance that the the tent was dug in deep enough that it wasn't going to blow away, but it would have been impossible to stay in. Okay. At the time, that's kind of weird. But okay. a little bit weird. The structure of the mountain Kolat. Uh, match the requirements for this type of wind. So the people who went and investigated it, they said it has the perfect structure to create this kind of wind. And mm -hmm. modern investigators went and were experiencing very terrible windstorms on certain nights. And they said, yeah, it's very possible that this actually could have happened. And so they may have actually had no choice and had to run and leave the tent and go down to the uh, go down to the trees. Similarly to this, mm -hmm. it's a, it's kind of an addendum to this. There's another phenomena called infrasound which is a super low frequency sound that in some cases can produce physical discomfort and panic in lots of people who are exposed to it for extended okay. periods. And it can be caused by heavy wind in very specific instances. And people went there and when they were measuring the wind, it was able to register these low level frequencies with the wind. So it was kind of making them crazy? Maybe the wind made them crazy. Kind of like how you have the silence or the, the, the hum the in hum. Taos, that maybe it was creating the sound that they were fine with for a while, but then it kind of made them panic and go crazy. Maybe it's why they left the uh, tent without any clothes. They were a little bit crazy. And then that when would they, have to be so extreme, though. Well, this theory also suggests once they got down to the tree line, they were they would have been out of the area where this infrasound was being created. Yeah. And they would have been able to regain their faculties and go like, huh, this is weird. We need to get back to the tent. And the three of the guys who were pretty decently dressed said, we're going to go up there. And uh, they died. Right. And the two guys died below. And, and that could have happened. This is a weird theory because trying to it's explain all these weird. people dying have to do with you know, crazy wind or a hum that makes you go crazy. I don't like the hum one. I That one bothers me. I feel like that, I, I don't know if that would have been, it, it must have been one hell of a sound. Yeah, right. Because I just don't see that being, they were already dealing with so many things, but maybe that was the thing that broke the camel's back. You can go back and forth on it like a million times. I can see how that can work, but I just don't think that was it. Well, the other thing is the hurricane force winds, that sucks. But if you're having trouble breathing in the tent, you'd think you just like open, cut open the tent and start breathing outside of it. Like, why would you run without clothes in that horrible wind? Like, I still have well, a hard the, time Right, if the that. wind, if the tent was still standing and your clothes were in the tent, you might as well put on your clothes while you're there because it's Absolutely. not flying away and then, and then run away. Yeah. I don't know. It's just running naked in the freezing cold because the wind is really high. I don't know. I, I'm not in that situation. I've never been in that situation. But that one, I don't know. Maybe if I went in a simulator, I might be able to see how much it sucks and be like, oh yeah, they totally <laughs> ran. I'm not sure. 
So now let's get to the official explanation from the original report. Ooh. Because that's important because it leads into the new evidence that we've got. So the original investigation suggested that an avalanche had occurred. The avalanche would have hit the tent and covered it with snow, or at least was loud enough to alert the group to wake up. Right. They had then panicked and cut their way out of the tent and attempted to either run from an existing avalanche or a pending avalanche or an avalanche that had already occurred. And they went running for the tree line because that would have been a much safer place oh, to yeah. hide from impending snow. That's a long run when there you've got an avalanche and avalanches yeah. are fast. And it said that if snow had covered the top of their tent, because when they found the tent, it had snow on it, they would have had to have cut their way out because maybe they were suffocating. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't have had time, and the weight of the snow would have kept them from grabbing their clothing, and they wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Like that, they were stuck, and they yeah. were panicked, and they were running. And then, uh, so, so then it goes on to explain that all these people went to the base of the mountain, and they tried to set up a fire. Two of the people who were badly dressed were succumbing to hypothermia. Three of them decided to try to find the tent again, even though it was late at night. They also died on the way because they couldn't find it at night, and they were also freezing. Oh, yeah. And the other group of four went off to... Build um, that dome. Went off to build their little hidden thing. But here's some issues with this avalanche theory. The damage to the bodies? <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. The damage to the bodies is the big one. Right. It doesn't correlate uh, for sure. But also, you can tell when an avalanche has occurred. And none of the investigators saw any evidence that there was an avalanche that had occurred on the yeah. mountainside. Like, avalanches are big, heavy things. You'll see giant gashes in the snow, huge amounts of snow moved, and you'd also still see damage on the tree mm-hmm. line from where the snow went. None of this had actually occurred. Right. And sometimes the snow could have been so heavy, they could have even dug themselves out. The snow on top of the tent was so small, like, they didn't have to dig themselves out. We're talking, like, oh. less than a foot of snow. Like... They could have dug themselves out. They did dig themselves out if there if there was snow there at the time. So yeah. there's just so much suggesting that there actually wasn't a massive well, at avalanche. At least it wouldn't have been such a violent avalanche or something. It would have been like a little tiny yeah. thing, but it but doesn't it, seem like that's the case. But here's another thing, and this piece of evidence actually goes against the heavy super windstorm people were talking about too. The photos of the investigation show that a lot of these people, you know, they stuck their skis up. A lot of people, when they camp out somewhere and they're not on the skis and where they stick the bases into the ground so they kind of stick straight up okay well the hikers skis were still there they Ooh. weren't buried in snow they hadn't been knocked down by waves of snow or heavy wind or they were still sticking up and that would fly away i'd like to think so i can't imagine why wouldn't yeah very few people address this but i think it's an important thing to talk definitely. about. definitely either way there's a lot of inconsistencies with this there can't have been a massive avalanche And now we get to the point where people who may have heard this story before, this is the new information. This is the recent stuff that's been done in the last year. How? Oh, this year. 2019, 2020, and published in 2021. Let's hear it. So a lot of this was created using modern measurement techniques where they, you know, measured the mountain, got geographic data and everything, but they also compared it with the exact information we knew from the investigation. Okay. They were able to find the exact location of where the tent was, which was slightly different than the report suggested, but they were able to find out where it was from the photographs. They were able to recreate things and run simulations and figure things out. One thing that they were able to guarantee from their research is that the weather was indeed way worse that night than any of the investigations have suggested. Everything they find out now says that the winds were in excess of 64 miles an hour. Holy... And the temperature was probably around negative 34 degrees Celsius, which is negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my God. That's a bad day. I would have. Yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> I would have died. And I mentioned earlier that they ran simulations, and this is where things get funny. These simulations were ran thanks to a Disney animated film known as Frozen. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm not joking either. <sighs> Oh my god, that is so weird. Using some of the snow simulations developed for the movie, several avalanche specialists were able to create a new picture of what may have actually happened to these hikers. Photographs taken by the group while setting up the tent, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. show that they cut a 90 degree hole in the slope of the side of the snow, probably to block the wind from the tent, but also so that they could have a more level surface to set up their tent. Okay. This created an ideal scenario in which a slab avalanche can occur. Now, a slab avalanche oh. is very different from a traditional avalanche. We imagine massive amounts of snow coming, coming down. down, destroying everything. A slab avalanche can be very, very small. It is caused by the formation of different layers of snow on top of each other. A fluffy and light layer of snow is laid down, and then as it's slightly frozen, a much denser, heavier one is built up upon it, creating a little bit of a lack of structure. When they cut into the side of the mountain, it removes this structured strength that it has, allowing for the top layer of snow (gasps) to be able to slide on top of another layer of snow, which since you've gotten rid of this structural integrity, but you also have 64 mile an hour winds, what this can cause is a slight sheet of snow, not even a foot thick, but it could be as wide as someone's yard, maybe Mm -hmm. a half acre to just slide down. And it is very possible what happened is they experienced a small slab avalanche, which even though it's a small amount of snow, is enough to cause bodily damage and bruises and whatnot. Right. And it may have hit over their tent, causing them to panic and cut out of it. It would also explain why there's such a small amount of snow on the tent, but why they would have panicked and cut out of it and ran because they had no idea what a slab avalanche was. They thought they were in the midst of a full-blown avalanche. Of a much bigger thing Causing them to go. And to leave. Okay. That explains some of it. (laughs) This also does explain why the skis may have stayed up. They were either out of the way of this slab avalanche or it wasn't strong enough to knock them down. They wouldn't have noticed exactly what had happened, but it would have definitely felt like an avalanche. So you can understand their panic and inability to get their clothes or even remove what little snow was on there so they could get their clothes. They had Especially if it was happening at night. Like you can't see anything. Black outside. You're like, I can't even see the avalanche coming. We have to like run in whatever direction we think is safer. Exactly. Yeah. After making it to the tree line, they attempted to build a fire, but it wasn't enough to keep them alive. The two poorest dressed died of hypothermia, their burns possibly from them getting too close to the fire in a fit of delirium. Yeah. The other three attempted to return to the tent for supplies, but died on their way. But what about the injuries to the final four, the big elephant in the room? Well, recent analysis has also been done of that, and there are two new possible theories as to what happened to them. One is that the four of them collectively fell through 10 feet of snowpack and impacted on the riverbed below. The snow may have been weakened because the stream underneath never would freeze. Mm -hmm. And so that meant as the four of them were walking over, they were building their snow den because notice they said meters away was where the sticks were and they weren't on it. If they were walking over this snow and it was loose and weak underneath, it would have collapsed and causing them to fall 10 feet down. Heads hitting rocks, chest hitting rocks, they pretty much all just fell to that. The guy breaking his neck. Yeah. They all may have just tumbled and fell to their death okay. over a riverbed. It explains why they're in a river, too. Why would they give up and die on a river 
even with hypothermia, they're just like, yes, this running cold water, I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to lay on this water. Alternatively, similar to this, was that while they were digging and trying to create a deeper pit and everything, this intense 10-foot snowpack fell on them. That kind of weight is ridiculous because a snowman falling on you hurts like hell. Sure. That it could have been all this weight on them. And while their bodies were sitting there atrophying for two months, all this weight was slowly compacting their chest, which would explain why they had no damage to the flesh, but the interiors were completely broken. However, the causes of death did suggest that the traumatic injuries were the cause of death, suggesting the okay. first theory of them falling 10 feet through the ground mm-hmm. while they were trying to build their snow den, collecting sticks and everything, that is what killed them. And it wasn't snowpack over time that killed them. They should have died there. very shortly after it happened. Okay. At this moment, these are the theories that I at least thought were worth discussing. And this most recent one, thanks to the movie Frozen, <laughs> and it was because one of the Avalanche specialists was watching the movie and he saw a way they were doing an avalanche and he was like wait a minute he's like holy he flew to hollywood talked to them and was able to use their computer and simulations and run it and be like this really works wow good for him also like okay so they got the simulator they got all that stuff they're like we know snow now a lot better for whatever reason (laughs) um and okay got it what about the radioactive clothing? What about the and, scorch marks on trees and the missing pictures? I need to know. And there you go. Because <laughs> you're hitting the things that I think are important. Why I don't, I can't do my thing where I'm like, I think this is what happened. Because there were lights in the sky. Like you said, the scorch marks on the trees that were never in the official report, but people claim to have seen them. Yeah. Photographs deliberately missing or misplaced by a bad clerk. Yeah. And the radiation. Ooh, the radiation. Because if he had radioactive clothing and he had been carrying around for two years and he wasn't dying of cancer, good for him. I um, suppose, yeah. Especially that other massive Other stuff should have been radioactive, And right? it wasn't just his clothes, as we discovered. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like I can just put something that's radioactive on a table and then take it off the table and throw it away and the table's fine. There will be radioactivity on the table now. It's yeah. Radiation is almost, I mean, it's not actually contagious, but radioactive <laughs> stuff does it tend to, to affect other. other things. Yeah. And so just her shirt, just the part of his pants and his, exactly. I'm like, why isn't it in more things? Maybe there would have been more radiation and the stream was doing a good job of dissipating some of the radioactive dust. But no matter how you look at it, and I love this new stuff, I do like the idea that maybe a slab avalanche is why they left. It explains the tent perfectly to me. But maybe the slab avalanche was caused by the weapons testing. Oh. And so what if it's a combination of theories? And what if it's, I don't know. There's just a lot of things here. And then, I, and then I go back to the girl's tongue being missing. Everyone said, oh, it was just animals taking out her tongue. But then there's those theories of it looked like she had swallowed a lot of blood, suggesting blood was pumping. Yeah. It was taken out while she was alive. What if there were, I don't know. There's just so much here. It just keeps me thinking. I like that there's new evidence, and I think it's important. I think they're doing a lot of good stuff. But the the Russian officials who reopened this in 2019, yeah. they have officially closed it, saying that this is what happened. That oh, this wow. is now the new theory. Of but like when what they're happened. questioned, they're like, "Before you close this thing, you didn't address the other stuff." And they're like, "Well, that wasn't really in the official report. Is that why they dusted the- under the rug, or like the only weird one? Because they're they're not going to talk about the lights in the sky because it's not part of the official evidence. They're not going to talk about the scorch marks. It's not even part though of the official evidence. it's literally evidence of camera footage. But okay, whatever. And the camera stuff they could easily say is just ruined film. Okay. The one thing they do have to address is the radiation. And as far as I can tell, the official theory 
is that one guy okay. worked at a nuclear plant. He had radioactive clothes. She was wearing it, and perhaps maybe some of it brushed off on the other guy. Oh, I think I think someone suggested that that other guy was from a town that may have been in the contamination zone of that nuclear disaster, and maybe he would have had radioactive clothing. But the likelihood of these two people being these two articles of clothing being right next to each other is so slim. <laughs> it is so unlikely, and also I don't believe it. <laughs> So anyway, if, yes. if you actually listened to this whole thing and didn't turn off because you didn't want to hear about dead bodies, I hope I hope you are as as intrigued and confused, scared as I am. Yeah, I'm a little terrified. Like when I every time I hear that story of like this is so creepy because no one ever is gonna know what really happened. No one can really. I mean, they can simulate snow now, cool, but you can never simulate like their behavior. You know what I mean? Like exactly. why were they uh, in a tree? Why were there clothes in trees? Why why was this happening at the same time? Shouldn't they have been more together? I don't know. Like, I just, I have a hard time buying it, I guess. I do too. Um, and so there is there is a website, the dietlovepass.com, I think. they There's even a book about this. There's a lot of books written about this. A lot of people pose their theories. I want you to know that I tried to get as much information as possible in this, but I still had to leave out so much just because it wasn't conducive to flow. So if this is interesting to you, there is so much new information out there. There's oh, so yeah. much to go into. This is one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And I'm hoping at least what I told you piqued your interest and it's totally worth looking into. And I hope someone makes a really good movie about it. Oh, Not yeah. a bad movie about <laughs> it, I'm going to say. We saw a movie um, based on this. It was very weird. What was it called again? I don't remember, but it's totally fictional. And it was it was a monster movie. It wasn't The Devil's Backbone, was it? No. Is no. that another movie? That's a totally different movie. Okay. I think that's a Rob Zombie movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, not that movie. No, this one was definitely a monster movie. And it was actually good until the end. So, But, but anyway, yeah. I want someone to do a good movie about this because it's just so bizarre. Like, pick a theory and run with it and make it exciting yeah exactly yay well thank you for the story it was so good i'm always happy to hear it and also i really did learn new things okay so i didn't fail that's good no i actually had forgotten some of the details so i like when but then when i said radiation you're like whoa yeah Yeah, i remember that it's happening again yeah i'm so glad i like that's the part that i'm never gonna forget um obviously the tongue getting ripped out and the eyes missing because there aren't a lot of animals either right it's so (laughs) it's there's snow everywhere and like they just went for the eyes and the and like really that's what i'm trying to say like why didn't they eat their other goodies like their neck or like you know what i mean other parts that animals tend to go for exactly and and what about the two guys who were completely exposed not 10 feet deep in the snow they they nothing was soft bitten off of them yeah i was like if there was an animal they would have been able to sniff out those guys first before digging or whatever yeah what is happening (laughs) so anyway that's my story for this week yay thank you chase Well, everyone who is still with us, thank you for listening. I really hope that you had an amazing time. And if you had heard the story, then I'm hoping that you learned something new as well. Also, if you guys have any suggestions that you want to get in contact with us and uh, want us to tell a story, our email account is hotwpodcast at gmail.com. Also, our on social media, so feel free to check us out there. Post pictures that maybe that are relevant to us, like hashtag us, all that fun stuff. Oh, and especially if you've made our Hair of the Werewolf Summer Cocktail, send us a picture. Definitely. We've got got another one we're going to post in just a few days, so that'll be good. Yes, definitely. And of course, if you're having a very hard time, a very hard week, and you need to settle down and maybe get over it, well, don't worry, because the best cure for a hangover is fear. Bye, guys. Bye.